listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Today, we are going to cover a figure that has been immortalized in history due to his controversial leadership and death. It has been a subject of intense academic inquiry, provoking debates about his leadership style, his decision-making on the battlefield, and his relationship with Native American tribes that he encountered. So, as we bring you the depictions of this Ohio general in popular culture and their impact on his legacy, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our storyteller and journalist who spent 30 plus years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Ohio has been a nursery for America's presidents, so many of its astronauts, some of its most famous inventors, and of course, for many brilliant military minds. This state has contributed so much to our country. But along with the famous come the infamous. If we're going to take credit for the likes of General Ulysses S. Grant and General William Tecumseh Sherman, I guess we also have to take credit for General George Armstrong Custer. Poor George. History has associated the name Custer with defeat, resounding defeat. On June the 25th, 1876, General Custer led 224 soldiers to their deaths in the epic Battle of the Little Bighorn on the plains of Montana. Custer's last stand, as it is often called, arguably rivals the Alamo as the most famous military battle in the West. But Custer's story, like so many, is far from black and white, and there are questions that remain 150-so years after that fateful day. Among the debates is this. Did Custer and many of his men actually kill themselves in the final minutes of the assault, opting for suicide in the face of certain torture and death? George Armstrong Custer was born in 1839 in New Rumley, Ohio. That's a crossroads along State Route 646 in Harrison County, near the state's east-central border. There's a memorial there with a statue, an exhibit pavilion, and there's a museum at the site of his birthplace, if you've got a mind to check it out. Custer's parents were Emanuel, a farmer and a blacksmith, and his mother, Marie. He also had seven siblings. Those conditions were ripe for turning him into a lover of practical jokes, an attribute that lasted his lifetime. Custer was sent to Monroe, Michigan, to live with an older sibling for a few years while attending school. But then He was back in Harrison County in time to enroll in McNeely Normal School, 
which later became Hopedale Normal College in the village of Hopedale. That's where they trained generations of elementary school teachers, and that's what Custer became. He worked his way through school carrying coal to pay his room and board, and upon graduation in 1856, he got a job teaching school in Cadiz, Ohio. Cadiz, by the way, is the birthplace of movie star Clark Gable. But Destiny had other plans for George Custer, because in 1857, he entered West Point. The military academy was normally a five-year course of study, but it had to be shortened to four years, because in 1861, you know what year that is, the American Civil War broke out. There were 79 cadets in Custer's class when they started. Some dropped out early. Others resigned to go join the Confederacy. 34 graduated. Among those 34, George Custer was dead last in his class. Not only that, in his four years at West Point, he had amassed a total of 726 demerits one of the worst conduct records in the history of the Academy. George Custer was a man who did not like to follow rules. Certainly, his love of pranks didn't help. A local minister later asked about George, said this, He was an instigator of devilish plots, both during the service and in Sunday school. On the surface, he appeared attentive and respectful, but underneath, the mind boiled with disruptive ideas. You know what? Custer probably would have appreciated that sentiment. A fellow cadet recalled that Custer told him once, there are only two choices. You'll be the head or be the foot. And he had no desire to be the head. Then again, he didn't have a choice because the Civil War had just broke out. The United States couldn't afford to waste the men it had trained to be officers. And so while any other time the lackluster Custer might have been relegated to some obscure post somewhere and had been happy for it, his trajectory was only going to go up. He was commissioned a second lieutenant and tasked with drilling volunteers. He fought at the First Battle of Bull Run and at the Siege of Yorktown and then was made aide to Major General George McClellan. There's a story that at one point he was traveling with General McClellan and his staff when they came up to a point where they had to cross the river and Custer heard his superior say, gosh, I sure wish we knew how deep that river was. So without a word, Custer urged his horse into the middle of the river, then shouted back to his astonished officers, That's how deep? From there on, like I said, he was only going up. He became a captain and then brigadier general of volunteers, commanding the Michigan Cavalry Wolverines. He became one of the youngest generals in the Union Army at the age of 23. His high-water mark in the Civil War was probably July 3, 1865, where he and his men joined the legendary Battle of Gettysburg. 
He was remembered for a very critical point where he and 400 of his men were the last obstacle in the path of a Confederate cavalry. Custer rode to the head of his troops, drew his saber, threw his hat off so they could see his long yellow hair, and shouted, Come on, you wolverines! Custer's brigade lost 257 men at Gettysburg, the highest loss of any Union cavalry brigade. But he defended it, saying, I challenge the annals of warfare to produce a more brilliant or successful charge of cavalry. And frankly, his superiors liked his willingness to sacrifice. It earned him a promotion to major. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Custer was still a handful, though, always pushing the envelope. In 1865, after the war ended, Custer had his men steal a prize racehorse named Don Juan near Clarksville, Virginia. Then he rode the horse in a Grand Review victory parade in Washington, D.C., creating a sensation when the scared horse bolted. When the owner of the horse learned about this, he wrote to General Grant demanding the return of the horse, and Grant told Custer to do just that. Custer ignored the order, hid the horse, and won a race with it the next year. Later that year, the horse suddenly died. Custer was assigned to command volunteer forces in Texas during the Reconstruction period. His men there hated him. They considered him vain and way too flowery with his overly decorative uniform. Once, Custer had to be whisked away after being warned several of his men planned to ambush him. In July of 1866, now this is a year after the Civil War had ended, Custer was appointed lieutenant colonel of the brand-new 7th Cavalry Regiment, based in Fort Riley, Kansas. This put a new enemy in Custer's sights, the Indians of the Great Plains. He served in several campaigns against the Cheyenne, including one in which he claimed to have led his men in the killing of 103 warriors and an untold number of women and children. They fought the camp of Chief Black Kettle, and once he had his men shoot 
875 Indian ponies that they had captured. His 7th Cavalry's job was to scout the Indian territory looking for trouble and working to force the Cheyenne onto their assigned reservations, while also protecting the settlers and railroad survey parties that had come to plan for the railroad. The whole problem with the Sioux, that's going to be his downfall, by the way, began in 1875. That's when Grant, who's now president, wanted to buy the Black Hills from the Sioux. Well, the Sioux didn't want to sell their Black Hills. So the U.S., angered at this refusal, ordered all Indians not on reservations to report immediately to their reservation by the end of January 1876, or they would be labeled hostile. Now, they didn't really enforce anything right away that winter. I mean, winters are brutal that far north. But come spring, Custer and his 7th Cavalry was charged with rounding up the remaining free Indians. At the same time that this is happening, Sitting Bull, the famous Lakota chief and holy man, had called together the largest gathering ever of Plains Indians in Montana to discuss what to do. It was this group, Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho, that would clash with Custer's 7th Cavalry at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. Custer's men were actually supported by Crow Indians who didn't want Sitting Bull's encampment hanging out in their reservation, and they hoped to expel them. That June, one of the Crow discovered the trail of a large village on the Rosebud River, and Custer's entire regiment was detached to follow that trail and see what was up. Custer sent some Crow Indian scouts ahead, and they found the Indian rebels in a camp in the valley near the Little Bighorn River. Custer really wanted to make plans and attack the next day, but he knew that his presence had just been discovered, and he decided they'd better attack immediately. It was June the 25th, 1876. Custer terribly misjudged the force they would face. The cavalry had a total of about 500 men. The Lakota-Cheyenne Coalition fielded 1,800 warriors, with some eyewitnesses insisting the number was twice that. The troops under Custer's command were cut down easily and quickly, including Custer himself. Native warriors stripped the dead of their firearms and ammunition, so the fire from the Indians kept increasing, while the return fire from the cavalry kept decreasing. In a final stand, some of the surviving troopers shot their horses and used them as breastworks on a ridge. But it wasn't enough. 
the warriors made one final push and killed every man left standing. Casualty estimates vary, but most put the loss at about 268 U.S. soldiers. That casualty number, by the way, accounted for more than 1% of the U.S. Army at the time. The Indians, meanwhile, lost about 50 warriors. So, who killed Custer? Plenty of warriors wanted credit, including White Bull, Rain in the Face, Flap Lip, and Brave Bear. Northern Cheyenne storytellers even passed on the oral tradition that it was a woman, Buffalo Calf Road, who struck the final blow against Custer, knocking him off his horse before he died. In the 1920s, two elderly Cheyenne women spoke with oral historians and gave a different story, that they were there during the battle. They recognized Custer's body on the battlefield, and they stopped a Sioux warrior from desecrating it. The women identified themselves as relatives of Monacita, who was reported by both Indian and white witnesses to have been Custer's lover and had borne him two children. So, when the women saw the warrior getting ready to desecrate the body, they said, Stop! He is a relative of ours. And the warrior respected that command. Others disputed Custer's ability to have children. Custer was married to Elizabeth Clift Bacon, who remained back home in Monroe, Michigan. But he was a notorious player, and leading historians said it's believed he was sterile because he had contracted venereal disease back at West Point. They believe Monosita's babies were probably the progeny of Custer's brother, Thomas. Thomas, by the way, was also a member of the 7th Cavalry and also killed at Little Bighorn. But very quickly, another theory about Custer's death developed. When Custer and his men were found two days after the battle by General Terry's forces, they found most of the soldiers' corpses stripped, scalped, and mutilated. But Custer's body had two bullet holes, one in the left temple and one just below the heart. An army captain who inspected the body said it was his opinion that the temple shot was from a long-ranged rifle, not a revolver. Others who were there, however, insisted Custer and many of the members of the 7th Cavalry shot themselves when it was obvious they were about to be overrun. Now, there has been some research into this. In 2018, bioarchaeologist Genevieve Milkey of the University of Montana took up this question. She found at least 30 written battle accounts taken from Native American fighters and Army soldiers in nearby regiments and found out about half of those accounts described instances of Custer's men killing themselves with revolvers. 
She also had at her disposal the written results of two different projects that had excavated actual skeletons from the battle. There had been a project done back in 1980 and another one in the 1990s. In total, they had exhumed 31 victims. Now, the bodies, they had already been reinterred, but Milky was able to determine that of the 31 soldiers, only three had wounds suggestive of suicide. So it did happen, for sure, but we don't have Custer's skeleton, nor any definitive way of knowing if suicide was more widespread than what those 31 victims suggested. The bodies of Custer and his brother Tom, by the way, were buried in a shallow grave at the site. Soldiers did return a year later to retrieve them, but they found the graves had been scavenged, probably by animals, and the bones were scattered. They were able to retrieve a handful of small bones, and those were taken to West Point Cemetery in October of 1877, and Custer was reinterred with full military honors. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this case and all of our past cases, head on over to ohiomysteries.com. And also check out killerpodcasts.com. There you will find more podcasts just like ours. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.